Hey guys, this is the first episode of what will be three episodes recapping the season. When I set out to interview some of the physical therapy leaders that we've had on this podcast, right away I was anxious to start compiling some of their similarities and how we can apply those lessons to our own lives. When I sat down and began reviewing all these podcasts from Tim Fearon to Stanley Paris, it became clear that there's just too many nuggets to gloss over in one episode. So I'm going to do three. Today's episode, the first, is huge because we're going to focus on what these people did in their careers to reach the heights that they did. Although some of their pathways were very similar, some of them were really different. And in both of those instances, there are things that we can learn and apply to our own careers and journeys toward mastery. I'm going to start with one of the most interesting things to me. What event triggered that drive, that passion in the individuals on the show? We all get asked a million times, what made you want to become a physical therapist? And we usually have a canned answer about an injury or somebody else's injury. But what I'm talking about isn't that moment. What I'm talking about is the moment that you decide to not be ordinary. Almost without exception, for the people on our show, that moment occurred when they saw greatness in another clinician. Keep in mind, these stories weren't always with expert clinicians. They were just with clinicians that were better than they were. Probably the person who said this best was Tim Fearon. I found myself exceedingly bored, and I thought the profession to be exceedingly boring. Uh, And then I went and saw Stanley Paris, uh, was the teacher. And I realized after uh, being in Stanley's cast in the first day uh, that uh, the problem wasn't the profession. The problem was me. It was the professional who wasn't really professional uh, because uh, Stanley said more in one day uh, than I learned in my two years in PT school. Uh, So then I remembered Rick... uh, Bowling and Dick Earhart and thinking, you heard it here in this class, but you saw it there. That's what I want. I want to be that guy that's able to make a change with patients when they come. So there I was in Chicago, and Northwestern had just started a uh, a master's in musculoskeletal therapy. So I decided that uh, that's what I should do. But one instructor really uh, made an impression on me, and she was taught massage. She had been uh, brought up and made her career through the Sister Kenny era when they treated you know, people with polio with massage. Um, and she had wonderful hands. I mean, the minute she laid her hands on you, it's almost like you just went, ah, and melted. And I wanted to be able to do that. But for me, the life-changing uh, event came in the third week of the course when Maitland was presenting. And at that point, just as he started his week, I had also received 
uh, notice from home that I had been accepted into the three-month program in Australia. Um, and I was a little bit vacillating because I had established really good relationships with Eileen and Jenny, and they were acting as, you know, mentors for me. Uh, and I thought, well, do I really need to go there, travel that far to do this? Jeff was talking about the value of palpation in assessing patient progress and response to treatment. So we had a lady who presented with headaches and he was going to reassess her after his first treatment the day before. So she came in and he had her lie face down on the table so she couldn't see anything. He didn't ask her any questions and he palpated her cervical spine. Then he went to the blackboard that was behind him and he wrote 50%. And he turned and he started back toward her and then he had a different thought. He went back to the blackboard, erased 50% and wrote 45. And went back and then he spoke to the patient. So she was still face down, she couldn't see the board. Uh, and he said, how have you been since I've seen you last? And she said, oh, I've been ever so much better. I am 50, well, 45% better. And I thought, I'm going. I have to learn to do that. Vail was in the spring, and in the fall, I went to Australia. After the first week, um, I realized a little, I mean, I knew that before, but it, it really kind of hit me over the head with a sledgehammer. I don't know shit. <laughs> and I go, I gotta, I, I just gotta get better. And I, I, I spent hours and hours of extra time with Jenny and lunch times and before work and trying to really hone in, uh, you know, my interview skills and clinical reasoning skills and, even back in 1976, uh, they were starting to talk about clinical reasoning. And the very first week we had an in-service uh, right after work on Tuesday. And Pat Payne was her name, the director of the program. Pat brought in an incomplete quad, laid him down on the mat, and asked him, dropped his leg off the side of the mat and said, I'd like you to pick your leg up and roll over. Well, of course, you know, the quad couldn't do anything. and. I'm lying, I'm standing there thinking, how awful, how is she, why is she even asking this guy to move his guy? doesn't, I mean, that just seems so wrong to put him in that position. So I just yeah. watched as in five minutes using PNF, she was able five minutes later to drop his leg off the side and say, now pick your leg up and roll and he did it. And I went, oh my God, <laughs> I want to do that to my patients. And that's when I signed up for the program. There are two lessons that I took away from this. Number one, adopting a learner's mindset early on in your career, but also seeing that becoming an expert level physical therapist was something that is attainable. But also, I mean, probably more importantly, is to never forget that you have an opportunity to influence those that are at an earlier stage in their careers than you. You could be that person that lights the fire of that next physical therapist. And that's pretty cool. This led to most of these people going all out to improve their knowledge early in their career. 
Think about John Childs going through an MBA and a PhD just a couple years out of physical therapy school and being a well-known researcher after only seven years or so as a PT. Many of the guests traveled to other countries, including Dennis Morgan, who spent time in Vallejo's PNF program, spent two years in Norway, and then went to chiropractic school to learn manipulation. With only a few exceptions, these people did these massive life-changing trips early on in their careers. And I think that's probably a good move. Of course, you could do it at any time, but as somebody with two kids, I'm really glad I did my residency and fellowship before they came into the picture. It was just easier. Another key point brought up by these individuals in terms of their career progression was just volunteering, saying yes to projects when they arose, even seeking out areas where they could contribute. Perhaps the two best examples of this were John Childs and Stanley Paris. You know, the fact I even got to go to my PhD program, you know, all of those things are variables that to some extent were outside my control. But one of the things I quickly learned when I was there, there there were other PhD students uh, there that maybe didn't apply themselves in the same way. Um, And at least the way it worked at Pittsburgh at the time is, you know, the the level of your in-depth of the mentorship that you received was directly proportional to the inputs that you gave into the system. And again, I was, you know, one of these individuals that, you know, volunteered to, you know, be a lab rat and collect data at all hours of, you know, I just said yes to every project um, possible. And I got involved and I was very active and, you know, hey, throw me some crumbs and let me see if I can, you know, do something with this. And and as a result of that, um, you know, that mentorship came back to me um, you know, ten, tenfold. I, uh, but I want to tell you that you see, the point here is I'm enterprising. I'm enterprising. When I when I started to sail to England, it's a five and a half week trip on a, on a on a ship. No one flew in those days. I arrived at the ship two or three days early, and um, asked for a job, and I got a job. I became the elevator operator. I had to sign on as 17 years of age. I was 22 at the time. And, uh, but I got a crew job. I saved my, my boat fare and made small pay besides. But how I got the Olympic job is I wrote to the Olympic Association and said, look, I'm going to be going to Rome uh, as a spectator, but I'd be happy to come into the village each day and, and treat uh, any members who might need care. So uh, I met the, the, the secretary and we went wrestling together. I, I was a wrestler at that time, so was he. And we got along just fine. Next thing I know, I'm a full member of the team. I march on with the team. I'm living in the team headquarters. And, uh, you know, they, they give me a motor scooter so I can get around from one venue to another. I had a great time there. And I did that again in, in Mexico in 1968. Later on in the career of these physical therapists, you can see that they begin shifting from an internal development, making sure that they grew as a physical therapist and clinician, to an outward-focused development, teaching or contributing to physical therapy as a whole. Although there could be many reasons for this, I imagine that one part is that as one progresses up the ladder of expertise, eventually you run out of rungs. There becomes a point when there is no one left to teach you except the students themselves or the patients. And the best way to continue learning is, at least in part, 
to reflect on your practice and to teach with others. Barb Stevens discussed exactly that in her interview. And trying to pass on to them that fellowship isn't the end of your training. It's the beginning. If you do our fellowship well and you complete it, you've become a critical thinker. You've been given a method of uh, thinking and working and assessing that can be part of lifelong learning. And I think the other thing I would tell them to encourage them to continue is is that if you do this you learn something every day and you learn from your patients as much as you do from any kind of study that you've done so we hope that they become lifelong learners and the other thing is I encourage them to teach and share it with others because I think by teaching you become a better clinician as well Another person who recapped this process of starting to turn around and begin to teach the next generation of physical therapists was Tim Furon. I'm trying to represent that which Barbara Stevens, uh, via Jeff Maitland, Dennis Morgan, via Freddie Kaltenborn, uh, Michael Moore, via uh, Maggie Knott, uh, and Margaret Anderson, also via uh, uh, Jeff Maitland. I'm, I'm trying to, I, I, because none of those guys see patients anymore. Some of those names I just mentioned are dead. Uh, they don't see patients. And so once you realize that, uh, hey, they're not out there, who's left? And then you see in the mirror that it's you. Uh, it pushes the envelope, uh, which is fine. That's what I want. I, And so wherever you are on your own personal career journey, I hope this podcast was helpful in driving home some of the lessons about how to move through your career now and in the future. The next episode here is going to be a reflection on recommendations for clinical practice, which is not going to be a one to miss. So stay tuned for that. And by the way, if you haven't, take a second to leave a quick review down at the bottom. And if you haven't joined our Facebook group, Mindful Clinicians, uh, go ahead and do that. See you there.